Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Good morning, everyone. It is indeed my privilege and real pleasure to be exploring and unpacking chapters 11 to 18 this week. And I'd like to start off with the memory verse for the month, and that is from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And I'm going to read it for this particular class. And it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what a fantastic verse. So I'm going to be changing things up a little this week. Um, usually my students, uh, I find I either they have either an auditory or visual learning style. So I'm kind of leaning a little more on the visual side of things. And rather than go through all of the verses in these chapters, I've really teased out. I've gone with select verses to do a commentary and uh, go through some very specific learnings of interest. Okay, so I'd like to start off with placing this book in its proper context. The Hebrew title for this book actually gives us the theme of numbers. In Hebrew, this book is entitled In the Wilderness. Now, in terms of time span, Exodus covered a whole year, Leviticus only a month. But the book of Numbers encompasses more than 38 years and tells us what happened during those 38 years. And in fact, its opening 10 chapters cover just a mere 50 days. So I've got an overview of the entire book here, and I'm not going to go through this particular slide. It's a good reference slide that I'm going to make available to you through these student notes. But one thing that you will note is that the book has three parts. The first part is chapters one to nine, and here God is organizing and mobilizing his people to get ready to possess the land. The second part, chapters 10 to 19, which we're gonna cover this week, God tests the faithfulness of Israel to his commands. And in the ensuing next two weeks after that, all the way up to chapter 36 that you're gonna cover, you see God reading this new generation of Israelites to bring his promises to fulfillment. So, 
one thing I like this uh, class to do is to reflect on a couple of things. And I want you to personalize the answers to three questions. And those questions really get kind of reflect what the Israelites would have had to answer during this time of the Exodus. And the three questions as follows. The first is, where is God taking me? The second is, what will it take for me to get there? And the third is, what inward qualities must God develop in me and demand in me along the way? Now, when we have trouble in our lives, we usually try and resolve it in many different ways. But God's way really works, and it's only his way that works. And the book of Numbers actually gives us God's way. So this march in Canaan begins, and you see it on the slide, all of the major events that unfolded all the way up to chapter 10. And I'm not going to go through these events, but one thing to note, one would think that after such extensive preparation, the actual entering into Canaan would be very easy, but this was not the case. The preparation was exactly that, just preparation. Ahead of them were the greatest challenges, challenges that could only be met by faith. So the Israelites were fully prepared to walk as promised land people. And it was all focused to, towards this exact point, bringing them into the promised land. So let's unpack and see what happens in the next two chapters. So here now, Israel is on the march to Canaan. And immediately, after just a few days, the people complained. How could it be that a nation so blessed still complained? God had done so much in and for Israel. We look at the plagues of, in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, and so many more. Yet, they still complained. They just had dissatisfied hearts. And sometimes we complain not for any reason, but, that, but because that is where our hearts are. And our complaining often displeases God, especially when our hearts show a lack of gratitude for the past goodness and a lack of faith for what he can do tomorrow. God has always been faithful to provide for us, yet we complain. And it's so very easy to slip into this attitude and pattern of complaints. Complaints against God are incompatible with what it means to be his people. So we're told this fire of God burned among them. And the outcome of the purging fire God sends consumed some of, it, of the camp outskirts. Now a little note about this fire of God. Israel had valued the fire of God as the emblem of his presence at night. But now that fire became a double-edged sword. So besides being there to comfort them, here now it was to actually deal with their sin. And as with Israel, we need 
to realize that God's presence is a comfort when we're walking in faith, but a danger when walking in unbelief. So, of course, the people realized the danger they were in and appealed to Moses instead of God. Why we probably think because they lack this personal relationship with God. And as with Israel, God is sometimes just a deity, not someone we want a deep personal interrelationship with, just as Moses did. So Moses, of course, prayerfully interceded and the fire was quenched. Verse 4 tells us that this mixed multitude went up out of Egypt. Now, many were not ethnically Israelites, but they were Egyptians and other foreigners who left Egypt also. And besides being a, physical, uh, a mixed multitude physically, Israel was a mixed multitude spiritually. Not all had a genuine relationship with God. And this is also true of the visible church today, which Jesus said would contain good and bad until the final harvest. And that's in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. So Israel yielded, we're told, to this intense craving. The Hebrew word for yield is tava. And it's the strong desire for something pleasant, but perhaps sinful though not always. So their sinful desire would not be fulfilled unless they yielded to this intense craving. James chapter one, verse 14 says, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So the attraction to sin is present within all of us, yet, in choosing to sin, we still have to yield to that sinful desire. Look at the question they ask, who will give us meat to eat? That was a strange question to ask considering God met their every need. In verse five, we see Israel choosing to remember certain things about life as slaves in Egypt and exaggerating many of them the fish they ate, the fruits, the vegetables. Remember, they were slaves. Life would have been very harsh. Here they sinned with ingratitude. They grew tired and accustomed to this miracle of daily manna. Even we sometimes lose that sense of thankfulness and go too accustomed to the provisions from God and then begin to long for other things. So instead of looking for what God had for them in the future, which was the promised land, Israel focused on the illusion from the past. And I love this uh, comment I, that I teased out as I was going through my studies. It says, God's best for us is always ahead, never behind us. And we are called to have this attitude expressed by Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. It says, pressing forward, looking ahead, and not focused on the past. So we are to always look forward to the hope we have in Jesus. So Israelites now started to complain, and they complained that there was nothing to eat except manna. 
essentially, their complaint against the manor was, it's not exciting enough, it's boring. And here's the danger of making a habit of complaining. This lack of gratitude was nothing less than to have despised God. God is our provider, and to despise what he provides is to despise him. Jesus regarded manna as a foreshadowing of himself in John chapter 6, verse 35, declaring, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Now look at what they say in verse 6. They say, our whole being is dried up. That was a gross exaggeration. And these words sound overdramatic from a people who have had manna that came every morning. Israel focused on what they didn't have rather than what they had. And many since that time have followed the same dangerous path of forgetting what God has provided and focused on what one does not yet have. So Israel started to weep. And this childish weeping of the people not only angered God, it displeased Moses as well. And it drove him to complain to God that he could never meet the needs of so many people. So even Moses' complaining showed this lapse of trust in God. Moses responded to God in verse 11 the way many of us sometimes do. He essentially said, God, here I am serving you. Why did you bring this upon me? Yet, God allowed this to happen in order to help Moses see his own need for God. And God allowed this for the same reason God allows any affliction in our own lives. Three things to note, as I noted on the slide. First is it's to compel us to trust in him all the more. The second is to partner with him in overcoming obstacles. And lastly, it's to love and praise him all the more through this increased dependence on him. Now, in the middle of our affliction, we think God is against us, just as Moses did when he asked, why have I not found favor, God, in your sight that you lay this burden on me? And we sometimes feel like Moses did, basically saying, if you really love me, God, why would you bring this on me? But God's response is always the same. It's because I love you that I'm training you to build you up in faith and to trust in me. So Moses here, we told, could not bear this heavy burden. And as unpleasant as the work of leading sometimes is, God does not remove our troubles or obstacles, even of his most devoted servants, but uses those difficulties to shape his servants. The job of leading Israel, of course, was too big for Moses, but maybe it was a good thing. Why? Well, it would lead Moses to have to rely on God and not try to do the work himself apart from God. So the best thing we can do is to confess our own insufficiencies and to point to Jesus. This verse from the New Testament says, all that men need is found in him and in him alone. So Moses poured out his pain to God and he said, if you treat me like this, God, 
kill me right now. This was not a correct prayer from the head, but we recognize that it is an honest prayer from the heart. Moses goes on to ask God to not let him see his own wretchedness. God would not answer this prayer. God needed Moses to see his utter dependence on God and Moses' inability to do anything in his own strength. So when overwhelmed, of course, we need to take it to God and let go rather than brooding on it ourselves. And as the Apostle Paul said, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. And that's from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. So God's help now comes, and it was going to come to Moses through the support of these 70 elders and spirit-filled men. Moses was to pick men who had two things. First, they were already known as elders because of their wisdom, their conduct, and ministry to others. And the second was it would help him, they would have to help him to carry that spiritual load to care for and minister to the people. So, of course, Israel continued to weep, and God heard the weeping of Israel, and he knew that it was, it was the tears of this ungrateful and complaining people. Well, God now promises to give them so much meat that they will become sickened by it. This was because they denied and doubted the goodness of God's deliverance. It wasn't the lack of food that was the problem. It was the emptiness of their hearts. And look at Moses. He questions about the 600,000 men that he's got on foot. Moses reacted to God's promise to provide meat by trying to figure out how God was going to perform this promise of feeding 600,000 men. Where was this meat to come from? And we often do that, don't we? We need to stop trying to figure out how God will work in a particular situation and instead just wait patiently for him to work. God, of course, responds to Moses. God has inexhaustible resources that Moses, of course, never knew anything about. And God meets our needs in completely unexpected ways. And as God says, his arm has not been shortened nor has he lost his strength. So what does Moses do when he gathers the 70 men at the tabernacle, which was right at the center of the camp, and God placed the Holy Spirit upon men and they prophesy. This prophetic gift, we're told, was a unique one-time experience. Now, it's not clear why two men, namely Eldad and Medad, are not among the 70. But they too are also filled with the Holy Spirit, and they also prophesy. But Joshua learns of this, and he runs to Moses, and he fears that this might in some way undermine Moses' ministry. But look at the reaction of Moses. Moses was not threatened nor afraid of spirit-filled men being a rival to him. What he does is he longs for everyone in Israel to have the same filling of the Holy Spirit. This shows the incomparable greatness of Moses' character. So miraculously now, God directed 
this huge number of quail to the perimeter of the cat to be killed and to be eaten. Now, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, as we saw in a few verses earlier, it drew the man into the middle of the people of God, which was the camp center where the tabernacle was. To get the quail, the people had to go outside of the camp, and that was away from the center. And here's another nugget that I picked up as I was going to the study. It says, God's best for us is always, always towards the center of the camp, not on the outside. And what resonated for me from that is that we are to look to the Bible as the center of our lives in understanding God's word, rather than looking for all of the other extraneous sources of information to understand God. So look at verse 33. The scene here in verse 33 must have been this riot of meat-hungry people in this sea of birds that God brings. The people, of course, with great effort and excitement are gathering the quail for eating. But we are told, but while the meat was still between their teeth, God sent this plague among them, and many died. There are times when God grants an unwarranted request in order that we may experience the folly of our own desires. This was strict judgment. To inherit God's land, the people had to be ruled by more than their physical or emotional appetites. Spiritually speaking, many had their cravings be their grave. And the question for us today is, how many have lived and will live today in spiritual death because they yielded to their cravings and never found victory over their lusts? Jesus proclaimed that he was God's true and ultimate bread from heaven. And that's from John chapter 6, verses 29 to 35. And just as Israel was sustained only by manna in the wilderness, we as disciples are to be sustained only by the true manna. And that is Jesus, nothing else. So chapter 12, very short chapter. Here now we see Miriam and Aaron criticizing Moses. Now, they criticized Moses over something Moses had no control over. His wife was an Ethiopian. Many people are criticized over things they have no control over or things that are really not the main issue. The complaint we see over Moses' wife was not the real issue. The real issue is exposed in the verse to come. So Miriam and Aaron, of course, asked Moses, has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? So the real charge was that Moses arrogantly presented himself as the only spokesperson of God, thereby accusing Moses of pride. They wanted some of the authority and attention Moses received by God's appointment. Now we know God had spoken to Miriam and Aaron in the past, but God had not given them the authority to lead the nation. By God's design, Moses had a singular position of leadership over Israel. And this type of leadership is often seen in the Bible, where you look at David and Joshua in the Old Testament, Peter and Paul in the New Testament. And of course, the greatest example of this kind of leadership is Jesus, 
whose leadership style we are commanded to imitate. And then we are told that God heard their criticism in verse 4. God heard the criticism. Miriam and Aaron were accusing Moses of the very same sin, motivating them to make the accusation. That was pride. God now calls all three to the tabernacle. And perhaps as they're going to the tabernacle, perhaps Miriam and Aaron thought that God was going to use this situation to correct Moses, whom they thought was proud and dictatorial. And we see that God comes down in this pillar of cloud to make his will plainly known. So here now, God explained exactly what was so special about Moses. Now, most prophets in the Old Testament, we see, receive revelation through dreams or in a vision. God, however, spoke with Moses face to face. And Moses enjoyed this remarkable communion with God. And it's worth considering why. Three things, because God needed a man intimate with him to be a vessel of revelation and a proper leader for the nation through this remarkable time of, of the Exodus. The second was Moses was a humble man and only the humble, those who are genuinely others centered can be responsible for such communion with God. Now the King James Version uses the word meek. And it's essentially an attitude or a quality of the heart whereby a person is willing to accept and submit to the will and desire of someone else. And in this case, it's God. And the third thing we see about Moses was Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Moses's walk of righteousness and purity demonstrated over 40 years in obscure service of God in the smallest of things. And that revealed the heart God saw in Moses. So God comes now and he asks Miriam and Aaron why they were not afraid to speak against Moses. They really should have been afraid to speak against Moses. Why? Because their criticism was petty and over something that was beyond control. It was about the wife of Moses. The second thing is it was simply not true. Moses was not a proud man, but the humblest man on earth. The third, it was prompted by their own self-interest. They were jealous of all the attention Moses was receiving and wanted some of that for themselves. Leaders in every church today must make themselves accountable and open to criticism and questioning. I believe that. But I also believe that they need not make themselves quiet targets for those whose criticism is petty, false, and self-motivated, as we see with Miriam and Aaron here. So after making his anger evident, God departed. I can just imagine that at this point in time, this would have left an extremely uncomfortable pause for Miriam and Aaron. So we're told suddenly, Miriam becomes leprous. Now, leprosy was a disease of bodily decay and corruption. It was considered a walking death. And Miriam, as the instigator of the challenge, instantly had a seriously advanced case of leprosy. At this moment, God caused her body to reflect her heart. 
So Moses in verse 13, of course, immediately cries out to God, please heal her, I pray, he says. Now Moses, you know, had not spoken during this entire time he was accused, leaving it to God to answer his critics. Even as Jesus was oppressed, he did not open his mouth. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. And when we perceive accusations as petty, false, or self-motive, the right thing for us to do is to ignore them and just leave them to God and really just keep busy with what God has called us to do. So when Moses spoke, of course, it was in prayer for his accusers, not for himself. Moses was certainly others-centered. And then in verse 14, we see that the Lord said, let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterward she may be received again. Note if she was still a leper, she would not have been allowed to remain in the camp. So God allowed Miriam to live with this outward display of her inward heart for seven days outside the camp. And as God noted, Miriam had done something more shameful than spitting in her father's face, which was the ultimate insult. She tried to bring down a leader of God's people with petty, false criticism. And God allowed the entire nation to know about it. So that's the end of the devotion. And for discussion, um, I like to have the students reflect on four things. And I'm going to just read these questions to you. And you can just take them and reflect on them. And the three and the four questions are as follows. The first is, do you see a pattern of complaining in your life? What's one step you can take to complain less today? The second question is, how can you be more grateful for the things you have and not want more? The third is, is there anyone in your life that you are consistently critical of? Why do you think that is? And the last question is, are you experiencing division at home, at school, at work, with your neighbors? What is the real root of that division? And how can you attack it instead of the other person? So these are just four questions I'm going to leave with you as we end this uh, session. I look forward to looking at chapters 13 and 14 with you tomorrow morning. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the HeartStrong shop with all kinds of merch like hoodies and t-shirts and mugs to remind you of this journey of discipleship that you're on. You can log in to heartstrong.life forward slash login to access your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become HeartStrong disciples together.